One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. Follow us on Twitter at Cooper McKim and at WY Public Radio with the hashtag Carbon Valley Pod. It's March 2019, and the Carbon X Prize finalists have departed the frigid Wyoming cold, settled back into their respective labs from Ithaca, New York to Bangalore, India. And I am back home in Laramie, the Big Apple. The pressure is on, as teams are expected to arrive in Wyoming in just a few months. They'll have to get their demonstration set up and begin to compete for $7.5 million. Hey, Cooper. Hey, can you hear me? It's been a full month since Jason and I spoke, and he's back in Ithaca. We haven't really talked because I ended up back in New Jersey. Yeah, how did everything work out for you um, with you had to go home? Yeah, my my dad passed away pretty suddenly um, oh. on February 6th. Wow, sorry to hear that. What, what happened? I mean, um, he... He had a heart attack. I mean, basically, he'd been having some mechanical difficulties that we thought were taken care of, and uh, they were not. So that was pretty hard, but it's getting better. Oh, man. Yeah. Terrible. Not ideal. He's pretty young, too. This has not been an easy time for me. A couple weeks ago, my dad suddenly passed away. The day before he died, we talked three times on the phone. I called him a few times on my way back from freezing cold Gillette, actually, where I was the last two episodes. Soon, I was back in New Jersey, numbly sitting in my childhood home as friends and family came up looking at me with all this pity in their eyes. It felt strange to be in Jersey at all. It didn't feel like home anymore. The whole state felt foreign. Now, I'm back at work, bombarded with stories and stuff happening calling people up on the phone about stories that I'm having trouble connecting with. They just feel far away. I'm still numb, talking to Jason. Life happens, man. Yeah. All right, how was the trip to Mexico? Uh, it was great. Got some awesome surf and then did some free diving, hooked up with some locals and like went out on some cool pongas and and did some free diving. I brought a spear down there with me to do some spear fishing. Well, actually, it's kind of like a pole spear. So um, it's like We a- chat for a while longer and then soon get to the crux of the phone call. That Jason is really struggling to raise money. He opened something called a seed round, basically trying to make back that 500000 bucks he didn't get from XPRIZE. If he doesn't make that money, he will struggle to afford the competition. After hanging up, I had trouble remembering why the heck I'm trying to report this story. Sitting back, it does feel just bizarre that I'm checking in with this person in New York about a technology that Wyoming wants for what reason again? It was clearer before. But I think now I have to find my reasons again. 
Over the next few days, I think about it a lot. And slowly it does start to become clearer. I just have to take a step back and reconnect the dots. I remember this isn't just a story about carbon capture. It's about people. How individuals, like Ty Cordingly from episode one, are personally affected by the decline of a random resource that communities and the state have come to rely on. With less of that thing, people are reacting. In ways I'm not sure I totally understand. Emotional reactions carried out on Facebook, in the State House, in the comment section of my articles. So, in part four, I want to explore that and start asking people questions. Who might have an answer? From Wyoming Public Media, this is Carbon Valley. Following the race to develop an unlikely climate solution. I'm Cooper McKim. Right now, it's March 2019. I'm coping with my own grief as I begin to see that coal country is plagued by a grief of its own. So I travel to an affected part of the state to try and understand what that grief looks like, how individuals feel when their community's survival is threatened. I also want to understand how carbon capture ever became one solution to the state's collective grief. Now that I'm back from New Jersey and back at work, I'm finding the world has not slowed down. It feels like I'm jumping onto a treadmill going way too fast. A coal mine in Gillette laid off a bunch of people. A week later, retirees of another coal mine found out they wouldn't be getting the healthcare benefits they expected. I'm cranking out a lot of stories, working extra hard on some so they can air nationally. I'm plowing through each day using work to avoid thinking, slowly gaining weight, feeling bad for myself, losing my dad before I turned 25. I think it's starting to hit me while I'm talking to Jason because while we've been chatting about this random tech, Cole's disappearance is unfolding right in front of me, with folks feeling the personal impacts of it right now. And those two things, tech and a resources decline, are connected, something I momentarily forgot. Sometimes I would ask Jason about legislation going on here, or a company going bankrupt. I wondered, though, if he ever thought why he was coming to Wyoming to do this work. If XPRIZE ever briefed teams on why this was all being hosted here. If anyone knew the intense desire from state leaders for their companies, or ones like them, to do really well, on the off chance it'd make coal plants more competitive. That this $15 million research site where teams will set up, actually needed a tenant slash XPRIZE to get funding at all. Because when I returned from New Jersey, a utility announced it may close several coal plants early, right here in Wyoming. The global transition away from coal had made its way into this state. And people are not taking it well. It's fair to say panic struck. My first taste came from lawmakers. Center file 159, new opportunities for Wyoming coal-fired generation, an act relating to public utilities. A soft-spoken senator named Dan Dockstadter sponsored a bill that basically tries to stop coal plants from being shut down. A utility would have to try and sell it before it can close. 
Dockstatter represents folks where one plant may close early. We're trying to secure the jobs of our people across this great state, secure their communities, because as you think about it, it's not just a job, it's an entire community. I want to understand where this urge comes from, to stop coal from dying by any means necessary, rather than, say, pursuing a different kind of transition, adding in other industries first. At this point in my life, I don't feel like some rookie reporter asking questions, trying to establish myself, but someone dwelling on the stages of grief. I know it's not quite the same, but I do wonder if folks in coal country are going through a similar process of grieving an industry that's been the engine of their family, community, state, that's now fading away. To try and understand a different sort of grief while also avoiding the reality of my own situation, I'm going to visit the community the senator was just talking about, where a coal plant may close early, a small town called Kimmer. I drive the four and a half hours to southwest Wyoming, the latest place to feel the world's loss of demand for coal, a town that relies on a coal mine and its power plant for its tax base and employment, a power plant that may close early, and a mine whose owner just went bankrupt. Kimmer is a small town with only a few roads and home to less than 3,000 people. I drive around and civilization feels like an island. There's a couple of big stores closed down. Residential streets crowded with small old homes. Downtown is the J.C. Penny Mother Store. This is randomly the home of James Cash Penny. My first stop in town is at a guy's house named Jim Bills. I'm just gonna bow out. I told him we settle down in his basement, sitting in two big comfy recliners. There's a ton of moose decorations, including a moose skull hanging on the wall with a baseball cap sitting on top. So how has the town changed in the 40 years that you've been here? Uh, not much. Uh, it's a bust and boom cycle, you know, with the energy. So uh, the town hasn't grown that much since I moved here in 79. But uh, that's what it's all based on is energy. The whole town, the whole economy. I met Jim a couple months back because it turned out he was set to lose his health care benefits. He worked for the coal mine here, and when he retired, got benefits for it. But now the company is going bankrupt and is using the opportunity to cut down on liabilities, like paying his benefits. Jim would miss out on that. Now his son works at the mine. In Kimmer, the coal mine feeds the local power plant, which is set to close down early, possibly in just a few years. Hopefully there are solutions, but not three-year solutions. Not that it's going to happen in three years. And uh, uh, this town will just dry up and blow away. You know, a year ago, the town was going smooth. Same thing it's been doing for 100 years. A nice place to live. Everybody's happy. We didn't see it coming. I didn't, obviously. I don't think our town fathers did either. Yeah. But you're not going anywhere. Well, no, I'm retired, and I've got a nice house, and uh, I'm happy here. This is my home. So I'm not going to go anywhere, but my son will. So, yeah, maybe I will, because if my son has to move away, he's my only son, I'd probably follow him wherever he has to go. Salt Lake? Or... Well, yeah. 
wherever he can get a job. After the interview, we hang out for a bit and talk about life. I feel comfortable talking to Jim, who kind of reminds me of my dad, maybe just a similar age. It begins to make sense to me why someone would feel so determined to keep a power plant running. To Jim, it's at least partially about keeping the town going. I drive next to meet the mayor of Kimmer, Tony Tomasi. Gray-haired with glasses, he walks me out to his truck and we start driving around town. I ask him what he thought when he heard the plant might close down. I thought, well, I'm seeing what it says, but this can't be real. But it is. It, it, it scared you? It did, yeah, absolutely. It's a scary, it's a scary situation. Tony explains the mine and plant employ hundreds of people here and are huge to the area's tax base. That there's not some big money-making industry standing by to replace coal. And I think maybe we should have been talking about this five years ago. But I, I think it's out of sight, out of mind thing. You, you just assume that everything is there, everything is going to continue. Uh... So the response has been, let's stop it. The mayor says they want to push out the closure date as far as possible. Get things figured out in the meantime. Expand tourism. There are fossils here. Maybe a business or industrial park. Embrace new ag products. Bring in more people. Meanwhile, I'm still wondering, where does carbon capture fit in here? How would companies like Jason's or Sebastian's possibly play a role in keeping a coal plant from closing? I jump into the car with yet another stranger, who helps me understand. A goateed and Carhartt-wearing city councilor named Mark Quinn. We drive out to the power plant in question, and he explains, carbon capture does a few things that can help this plant out. It did not only help reduce emissions, but also provide opportunities for capture of those emissions on the tail end of the process to uh, uh, either end up with a marketable, useful product or to, uh, at the very least, capture it as an inert waste product. Enter the likes of Jason Selfie with a company that could theoretically pay a power plant for its waste, offset how expensive it's becoming. It'd be a way to not only keep on with the status quo, but welcome in a new industry. That's the idea, anyway. Because it's not clear to me whether this random, very young, largely unprofitable technology actually could help coal. Even if a company settled right next to a plant and paid for its emissions, would that be enough to keep a coal plant open? there isn't much time to find out. Power plants using coal are closing like crazy. Have been for years, with a ton more set to close by 2025. At this point, I'm still in the shock and denial phase of my own grief. Depending on who you talk to, I would say a lot of Wyoming is still in that phase. And honestly, I get it. Somewhere along the line, that shock and possibly bargaining turned into law. And now there are very real efforts 
to just stop this transition that's happening at a global level. Soon enough, that bill passes, telling utilities to try and sell off their coal plants. Maybe someone else can keep them going. Here's Senator Dockstadter again at the bill signing. And I thought about their families, and I thought about their communities. And I thought this is worth putting into the legislative process, into our statutes, to try to save jobs, to try to keep people in Wyoming, to try to what this entire state is based on, the mineral industry. That's what that's our driving engine. On a personal note, there was a gentleman that moved there with his wife, James Henry Bosworth, just after the turn of the century. And they raised their fam family in Diamondville and uh, <clears throat> mined coal. And uh, it's a little personal to me because these people made their entire living off of the, off the coal mines of the Cameron Diamondville area. And he was my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother. And his, his brother, my great-uncle, kept books for a fellow by the name of Penny, J.C. Penny. And so there's a little bit of history involved. And I apologize for almost a little bit of emotion there because <laughs> it means a lot to me, not only to the 2,227 people across the state, but the family legacy as well. Thank you. Thank you. This bill eventually lays the foundation for several more bills in years to come, including one that pushes the use of carbon capture alongside coal onto utilities. After the break, I want to answer a key question in all this. Can boosting carbon capture actually help keep coal alive? I want to recommend another show I think you'll love. Solvable is a weekly podcast where host Ronald Young Jr. asks how we can find solutions to some of the biggest issues of our time. You'll hear David Baltimore on AIDS, Sal Khan on basic education, and Roseanne Haggerty on homelessness. Recent episodes have focused on global hunger, our addiction to fossil fuels, eco-friendly transportation, and body positivity. These are the problems that seem too big or too complicated to fix. But in the hands of the right people, activists, scientists, policymakers, and politicians at the top of their fields, there are ways to solve them. That's the hopeful message of Solvable. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm doing everything I can not to think about my dad dying, about being fatherless, my best friend just gone. It took me a long time to delete his phone number, refusing to accept it was no longer useful. It's got me thinking about the stages of grief, how all I know is that I am not at acceptance yet. And I see that here in Wyoming too, trying everything to bring back value to this thing the state has in excess, zillions of tons of coal still under the earth. So, carbon capture has become a rallying cry in recent years. Just in the past few months, action is settling in that goes well beyond the XPRIZE competition, which was meant to be a sort of bat signal, if you build it, they will come type of thing. Companies are now competing to build carbon capture at a coal-fired power plant in the state, possibly even use the CO2 to pump oil out of the ground. Coal plants are set to close around the U.S. that take Wyoming coal. 
as one group with state funding tries to stop it. A school at the University of Wyoming just spoke to media, talking about how Cole's future could be brighter with this CCUS tech. The school has received tens of millions of federal dollars to pursue carbon capture, and just got funding to store carbon dioxide underground. Oh, and a new governor took office named Mark Gordon. Like those before him, Gordon made it very clear that this CCUS tech would be a centerpiece of his approach to the state's future. Coal continues to power this country, and despite market trends and politics, it will remain an essential part of America's portfolio for decades to come. Here in Wyoming, we'll continue to seek innovative solutions to support coal, address climate change, change and grow our economy. Thank you. Okay, so I think we've established that Wyoming leaders want this tech. But is it a realistic strategy to help Cole? Or is it like me, refusing to delete my dad's phone number? I honestly don't know. Last episode, we did hear how far away the tech itself is. But the question remains, if it worked out and carbon capture suddenly gained a foothold, could it help Cole? I begin to try and answer this question by talking to advocates for carbon capture. Jeff Erickson works for a well-known carbon capture think tank called the Global CCS Institute. He used to work for ExxonMobil and tracks the progress of this tech closely. He has a simple response to this question. Is it going to save the industry? Is it the silver bullet? No, there's much larger economic and market factors, I think, that are playing against the industry. That was quick. No, Erickson goes on that carbon capture does have a role to play with coal-fired power plants. Not as an extension of coal's life, though, but a way to keep emissions down before these plants retire. Real quick, let's return to why so many around here think this could help coal. Why a coal company has a page on its website titled The Surprisingly Sustainable Case for Coal. I sat down with Jason Baker, a well-coiffed guy with a big smile. This, Jason, is kind of the carbon capture czar in Wyoming, heading up a state authority. He says it could help the resource in a few ways. First, pretty much by trying to modernize it. The idea is to put it in a conversation with renewables by making coal a low-carbon electricity option. Sometimes I think we get into these debates, and certain people certainly do, talking about it's coal versus wind versus you know, nuclear, and, and those sort of fights really aren't helpful in finding a long-term solution. If the culprit is carbon, then that's what we should focus on. The thinking goes that the resource wouldn't only become politically acceptable, CCUS could also make coal more affordable by adding value to its waste, its emissions. If an oil company or a startup like Jason's or Sebastian's would pay for emissions, well, Jason thinks that could be big. The future of the coal industry is looking at sort of the, the economics of the entire system and not just, you know, we're going to sell electricity at X cents per kilowatt hour. Meanwhile, Wyoming is setting itself up to be a hub for the tech if it takes off, you know, a carbon valley, by setting up regulations through university research, maybe even attract a commercial project. Eventually, the state can connect the dots and try to bring down the cost. He says, like once expensive DVD players, CCUS will get more affordable. 
And then, voila, Wyoming can keep value with its coal rather than just turning away. It's an incredible shame not to utilize a resource that is available and if it can be done in an environmentally friendly manner. We've heard yes, no, yes, no. It will, won't help coal. Here's what I found. If you want to find a certain answer, you probably will. So I want to talk with someone with no dog in the fight who could square the debate for me. I call up a well-known coal economist who's used to answering every last question I have, a Canadian pet lover named Rob Godby, who works here at the University of Wyoming. I start with a basic question. Is it misleading to say carbon capture will help coal? Yes. Okay. Rob says, yeah, if emissions suddenly had value, that could change the economics of a coal plant. The problem is, he just doesn't see that happening. You know, it's pretty unlikely, I think, because there's just not that much demand for CO2. All this carbon capture tech we've been talking about, he says it's just too expensive and undeveloped to suddenly swoop in and save a coal plant. Meanwhile, natural gas and renewables are getting cheaper as coal plants just get older and more expensive, retiring nationwide. So, Rob says, CCUS itself could certainly work out, play a role in addressing climate change, but helping coal here? Well, that's a big leap of faith. The leap of faith is that we kind of skip this decade of transitions, if you can find it, cheaper ways to do CO2 capture, and a decade or two to develop those markets that might offset the cost through things like CO2 sales. Rob says maybe one or two coal plants will be kept open longer thanks to carbon capture. Perhaps a game-changing tech could come along. Maybe Wyoming citizens would pay extra in order to help out their neighbors. But there's a lot of ifs there, right? I also want to mention this isn't the only effort here to help coal. There's also shipping it abroad, turning the resource itself into products. You get the idea. With all this debate, I wanted to hear from a local leader again, who we heard in episode one. Rusty Bell is a super nice county commissioner born and raised in Gillette, an area that's paying $16,000 a month to market itself as a carbon valley. Rusty knows the debate well, that coal markets are going down, that carbon capture does not equate to rebuilding coal demand. But he made an interesting point I hadn't really thought about. We gotta at least try. I think we're gonna try to do what we can to at least set the stage for whatever new comes along that we're going to be hospitable to that group of people in that that industry. That it's naive to think Wyoming will just give up on coal. Rusty says, yeah, it might take 50 years before carbon capture helps out, but at least then it'd stop this enormous asset from becoming worthless. We have to try and give coal new value. Not necessarily to keep the state afloat, as some may see it, but to keep this community afloat, in addition to other efforts, say, into rare earth minerals or turning coal directly into something else. Maybe it'll buy time for Wyoming leaders to rethink how it funds the state, to stop relying so much on this one corner of Wyoming. And and in that meantime, I hope that the state of Wyoming takes a serious look at their, uh, the way they 
tax minerals and the way they tax, in fact, everybody and, and really restructure that tax system in Wyoming to make it, uh, make it a little different. I reach out to one more person to make sense of the Carbon Valley dream. The mayor of Gillette. Her name is Louise Carter King, the first female mayor of Gillette, whose dad started up one of the coal mines in town once upon a time. She has hope for carbon capture, but... It's not really going to be the one savior of the industry or anything like that, but anything that coal can be used for for a different way than it's being used now is looked at as a win around here. The mayor is striking a similar tone to voices in Kimmer, to Rusty. And after all these conversations, it is starting to make sense how carbon capture ever became a response to coal's decline, a response to that fear that your community might collapse. To me, it sounds like a sliver of hope. I've been thinking about these conversations for a while now, including with Rob Godby from earlier. It sounds like carbon capture maybe could have helped coal a whole lot more if the effort had started earlier, before coal plants were retiring by the dozen, when the resource was still uber competitive. That if big investments had started decades ago, maybe it would have stopped the past decade of countless plant closures. I wonder, does the mayor or Rusty think about that? Are they up at night frustrated that this didn't start sooner? It turns out, kinda, yeah. There is definitely some regret. You know, it's hard to say what people are thinking. I think we wish we would have started 20 years ago. But, you know, the best we can do is start as soon as we can, and I feel we did. And it just took a little spur, it had the downturn. I think it, you know, really woke us up that we've got to do something different. Rusty says the same thing. What were we doing? What was the coal industry doing? Oil and gas had and has put billions and billions of dollars into research and development over the past you know, few decades. Um, we never have really seen that from coal. And that's unfortunate. We can't go back in time now. I learned this what-if scenario isn't just a hypothetical. I actually spoke with a professor named Klaus Lochner, a contributor to the well-known IPCC writing on carbon capture, who literally made the pitch to coal companies to invest in this technology, like two decades ago, before coal's big decline. I said, look, if, you, if, if the year 2020 comes around, you are not going to be allowed to build a new, new coal plant because every bank in the country will know that they will not get their money back. So you better, by 2020, have the ability to build power plants that are are completely carbon neutral. Rob Godby, our resident economist, says it wasn't just coal that missed a huge opportunity. The Republican Party itself may have hurt the chances of carbon capture and coal survival by downplaying climate change for so many years. You know, if climate change doesn't exist, there's no justification to develop low-carbon technologies like carbon capture. So in an ironic way, the Republicans killed carbon capture as much as anybody else. 
In fact, the early efforts for carbon capture in Wyoming didn't take off for that exact reason. But now I'm hearing that the race is already over for this tech to help coal. Why would utilities opt to make electricity that's more expensive and polluting than natural gas or renewables? One analyst with a clean energy think tank, Dennis Wamstead, can't imagine a utility taking some big risk by attaching carbon capture to a coal plant and saying, Hey, we really want to do this. We really want to build a carbon capture facility and we really want to put it on our 35-year-old, 40-year-old coal plant and we're going to prove it's going to make money. In other words, a lot of people are skeptical that all this effort from Wyoming state leaders, the university, will pay off for coal. The governor's response has been look at wind energy, which has grown so quickly. Also, coal plants are being built in other countries. It's now been a few months since my dad died. People have stopped calling me or asking about him like they did early on. I watched and rewatched old comfort shows, Scrubs, New Girl, to try and ignore my general sensitivity. I start to feel completely disconnected from the place I grew up. I once felt pulled to one day return to New Jersey, but now it's not really there. I still crave stability though. So I've been thinking about buying a house in Laramie. Maybe that would dull my senses for a while. People in town always say it's a good place to buy a home because of the university. Nothing's gonna change here. It'll always be a good place to live. That is a comfortable feeling few other cities in Wyoming have. New Jersey may have its problems, but I never felt there were existential questions like there are here in Wyoming, which constantly feels on the verge of financial collapse. We've now heard from a bunch of people on why they're pursuing CCUS in Wyoming. It's seen as one piece of the puzzle to stabilize Wyoming's economic future, more locally to avoid collapse, Gillette or Kimmer. Here's the thing. There are also many others who are not on board with this vision. Many in the Wyoming public, coal miners, and left-leaning groups, ones dedicated to the climate, public interest, conservation. At first, that one confused me. Why would environmental folks oppose climate tech? So I reach out to a common voice in the Wyoming energy and environment conversation a lawyer named Shannon Anderson. So Wyoming's had a long history with carbon capture. Shannon is the staff attorney with a well-known environmental slash landowners group in the state called the Powder River Basin Resource Council. You're most likely to find Shannon testifying, perhaps at a contested case hearing, legislative meeting. Her dedication to this work is palpable in any conversation. I talk with her because she's been following this pursuit of carbon capture since the beginning, around 2008. She made it clear why an environmental group like her own has been skeptical of Wyoming's belief in carbon capture. I mean, it's it's sort of interesting to talk about a climate mitigation strategy that is all tied up in fossil fuels. The two seem to not really go together very well. And I I think that's the the crux here of the problem in Wyoming is that carbon capture has always been framed as a way to keep coal going, a way to get more oil and gas out of the ground, 
And our politicians and leaders have never really embraced the idea that it, it should be actually used to reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and to address climate change at that level. And so I, I think it's been hard for the public to, to wrap its head around because there is this talking out of both sides of your mouth sort of message with carbon capture. This right here. This is why carbon capture is so confusing. It honestly took me years to parse this out. On one hand, there's the likes of the Carbon X Prize representing this whole cross-section of the world that wants carbon capture to help the climate, the Jasons. And then there are fossil fuel interests, like Wyoming, who are very clear about wanting it to help extend the life of coal, pull more oil from the ground, and certainly mentioning the potential climate benefits too. It turns out Wyoming is not the only one who's turned to carbon capture with fossil fuels in mind. There are actually a lot of oil, gas, and coal companies embracing and investing heavily in CCUS. Support from the likes of ExxonMobil and Peabody Energy, a huge coal company. And it's not just Shannon that's skeptical of his unlikely embrace. The internet is littered with public interest groups calling carbon capture a scam, life support for big coal. Even Bernie Sanders' climate plan called it a false solution. One environmental advocate named Mike Ewall sees carbon capture as basically good marketing. So every bad industry um, needs to have that public relations in order to make themselves look like they're part of the solution, even though they're clearly part of the problem and we need to get past this greenwashing and um, move to the true solutions. Shannon Anderson makes it clear she doesn't see carbon capture itself as bad. The problem is clarity about what kind of carbon capture is being touted. I've heard this from a bunch of environmental groups. She's a fan of CCUS that's focused on reducing otherwise hard-to-avoid emissions, like from industrial processes in manufacturing, chemical industries, say. But for Wyoming, it's not really about that from her perspective. First and foremost, it's about extending the life of coal, without much math around the actual net emissions reductions. But even if there were 100% emissions reductions, she says there would still be questions, significant environmental and climate impacts, say, from coal mining operations. So, no, Shannon does not see carbon capture as some big solution, either to climate concerns or helping the state's communities. And I'll say again, she's one of many who feel this way, of just the general public around here, Coal miners, people around Wyoming who say stop looking at it. People saying we need to move on from coal, find another solution. I think I most often hear this is false hope for communities. I mean, it really does, in a lot of ways, carbon capture kicks the can down the road in terms of the conversation that we all really need to have about climate change. It, it seems to be the easy solution, right? Um, and it, it doesn't force, I think, the nation and the world to have that really difficult conversation that we absolutely must have, which is how do we address this major global problem that is heading and spiraling into catastrophe sooner rather than later? Catastrophes that affect Wyoming as much as anywhere else. A state that could see more wildfires, flooding, drought, Issues that would be very costly for every sector of Wyoming's economy, not to mention the health and livelihoods of everybody, from Gillette to Laramie to Kimmer. It made me think of the big Game of Thrones dilemma. 
Jon Snow trying to get everybody to stop focusing on the political battles in front of him and focus on the White Walkers, who will destroy everything and everybody if they don't deal with them. Shannon is saying, let's focus on the White Walkers. For the sake of Wyoming communities and the state's future, let's adapt and transition to something new, more stable. There just needs to be a recognition that Wyoming, Wyoming's economy will look different. It will be more decentralized. It will not have the one or two major sources of revenue. It will have to be thousands of new sources of revenue spread throughout the state a little bit more evenly. It sounds like Shannon is saying we all want the same thing. For this state not to face economic collapse, to survive. But saving a community doesn't have to mean saving coal. I feel like I'm learning all this nuance about carbon capture. That because I live in Wyoming, my impression in the beginning was carbon capture equals efforts to help coal. But now it is quite clear that's not the case. Around this time, I reach back out to Jason, our XPRIZE finalist in residence. I'm curious if he knows about why Wyoming wants tech like this. That he may be seen here as a way to help fossil fuels, communities. Jason did not really know that. But to my surprise, he didn't really care either. He says, well, great. Wyoming still needs to clean up its emissions. If we don't transition and acknowledge we need ways to make burning things cleaner in in the march towards 100% clean energy, we're not going to get there. And so, you know, Wyoming chipping in and covering as much of their carbon footprint as possible while they extract coal and burn it to make electricity is absolutely essential to this transition. So I applaud their effort. That doesn't mean I'm 100% saying that they should have a, a ticket to to continue on for the next couple centuries doing exactly what they're doing. I was so curious to see where Jason stood in this debate. If it maybe bothered him to be seen by some as promoting coal, since that's not what he's about. It turns out Jason is sort of in this middle ground that's really compelling to me. He sees the value of CCUS with coal, just not as a way to extend the lives of coal plants, what's often discussed here in OYO. He sees the world heading towards renewable energy. At the same time, though, I learned Jason also thinks investing in this tech could help Wyoming long term. But again, maybe just not as a way to help coal. And as we transition to these new technologies, clean energy, you know, all the grid infrastructure that needs to be you know, put in place, this is not a job creator. I don't know what is. I mean, this, this will keep people in Wyoming employed. Uh, right. Whether it's carbon capture, which I think is completely viable in, in the state of Wyoming. So, I, I mean, I think renewable energy increases in, in, in Wyoming for direct air capture could be a huge thing. The state's obviously dedicated to it and the state needs to produce new, new jobs. So from a carbon capture perspective to save coal, um, I don't know if the juice is worth the squeeze. A company like his very well could benefit Wyoming, but success of this carbon capture company or any of the other XPRIZE ones, I've finally learned this episode 
does not necessarily equal coal success. In fact, it seems pretty focused on the climate. Jason says he doesn't even need Wyoming's coal-fired flue gas long-term, which surprised me because I just assumed he did. He'd actually rather reduce those hard-to-avoid emissions from, say, an aluminum or concrete plant, or even capturing CO2 directly from the air, if it were more affordable. And maybe needless to say, his main drive with Dimensional is not to help Wyoming communities, which makes sense given he lives a world away. I do wonder, though, if there was some discussion amongst XPRIZE teams about what carbon capture means to Wyoming or its communities. There wasn't. The prize said it didn't feel like it was their position to sell teams on the state. They did have a kind of local trade show, though, to get to know the community. For Jason, there isn't grief, really, that's motivating him, either, to pursue this tech. There is distress, though. Rather than for communities, it's about the planet. He imagines swimming underwater, looking at coral ecosystems, and is kept up at night, imagining that future generations won't see them that these beautiful ecosystems will disappear, along with so much else of the Earth's beauty, all because of climate change. It's the end of May 2019, and work has finally slowed down a little. I'm trying to actually process my own grief. I'm exercising again, drinking less, and telling people what I need, that I want to talk about my dad, instead of expecting them to come to me. Since the episode began, the XPRIZE pressures have just increased, a competition that Wyoming leaders hope will increase the visibility of carbon capture, create viable companies maybe, show the world Wyoming can be a home to this. All, by the way, are still open questions. Jason's on a fast-paced mission to raise money just to afford setting up in Wyoming. It's uh, going slowly. It may need to speed up, though, because he and the other finalists will be allowed to start setting up in Wyoming soon. That's a huge step. And I'm very excited to stop talking about this tech and finally see it. Watch the drama unfold on the ground. See if there's a clear frontrunner. But I soon wonder... Will competitors actually show up? Next episode, teams are allowed to begin setting up in Wyoming. But will they? It's absolutely not a lot of time, and people are definitely racing. And we dig deeper into Jason to see whether he could really win 7.5 million bucks at the end of this. Really quickly, you get that Jason is not your typical CEO. If I, if I may say so and be a bit blunt. That's in part five. The show is produced by Noah Greenspan and me, Cooper McKim. Anna Rader is our digital producer. Aaron Jones is senior producer. And we had production assistance from Micah Schweitzer and Chet Lewis. Our theme music is by Mark Juliana with the music you're hearing now by Vegas. Carbon Valley is a production of Wyoming Public Media. This episode is dedicated to my dad. Hey, boo. Oh, puppy. Woo, woo! <laughs>
Got a nice little haircut. Yeah, she just got her haircut. She's a long hair. Oh, yeah? If you like what you're hearing, and even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover Carbon Valley, so we can keep bringing you stories about one state's economic future.